From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm guest host Katie Mullally. And first this morning, we speak with Dr. Herman Ponser, professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University, who reveals some new science on how our metabolism works and how we burn calories. There's good news. Our metabolism doesn't, snow, doesn't slow gradually as we age like scientists once thought. That is good news, especially after the holidays, right? Uh, then we speak with paleontologist Randy Ermus of the Natural History Museum of Utah. He'll talk to us about the long unsolved mystery of why 230 million years ago, marine reptiles were fossilized in the Great Basin of Nevada. Our guest is Dr. Herman Ponser. He's professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University. He studies how evolution has shaped human physiology and health. He's the author of a book called Burn. New research blows the lid off how we really burn calories, stay healthy, and lose weight. His new related article is in Scientific American this month, and it's titled The Human Engine. Studies of metabolism reveal surprising insights into how we burn calories and how cooperative food production helped Homo sapiens flourish. He joins us now to discuss. Dr. Herman Ponzer, welcome to Cool Science Radio. I'm so happy to be here with you. Well, we're so happy to have you. And and for good reason, I love to hear that my metabolism Oh, at my age, okay, let's just say 50s, is really the same as it was in my 20s. How is that so? I know. It doesn't feel that way, does it? I mean, I, mine doesn't. I'm in my 40s, and, you know, uh, it sure doesn't. But so um, there are a lot of things that we think we know and that we've all heard, you know, uh, about how our bodies burn calories, how our metabolism works in different contexts as we age, et cetera with lifestyle changes. And it turns out that a lot of those old ideas that we've all heard have all been sort of ingrained in us. Um, a lot of them are, are based on pretty thin evidence or sometimes no evidence at all. It's sort of, you know, it kind of becomes how we feel, right? And sort of how we feel becomes how we talk about our metabolism. And it's not really based on what uh, a researcher would think about as metabolism, which is the work our cells do and then how many calories that, that work costs every day, how many calories you burn every day. Um, and so, yeah, we had a chance, a lot of collaborators and I had a chance to actually do a big study of metabolism, measuring all the calories people burn all day, and look at this over the lifespan from people just eight days old to people in their 90s, and, and the results were kind of surprising uh, that it doesn't work the way that we think it does. Right. So basically, uh, it doesn't. your metabolism doesn't really change as you age until you get past age 60. And can you tell us about what happens past age 60? Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. So for adults, about in, starting around in your early 20s and all the way up to your about 60, your metabolism, the calories you burn every day uh, is kind of really steady, right? In terms of for how big you are. So we have to, you know, when we do these analyses, we have to account for people being bigger or smaller. That has a, an effect on how many calories you burn, um, that kind of thing. But once we, uh, you know, control for body size, your metabolism is, is steady up until you're 60. And then uh, for reasons that we don't really understand yet, it starts to decline and the calories that your your cells are burning the work they're doing declines slowly about seven percent a decade and so by the time you're in your 80s you're sort of 15 or 20 percent lower than you were right at 60 when you started the decline we think um and i should say these are these are cross-sectional data we haven't we never followed anybody for sort of 30 years right we'd love to do that next so these are people you know taking a snapshot of people in their 60s 70s and 80s but that's what that decline looks like uh, when we look at those data. So I'm guessing that the calorie counter on my Garmin watch isn't mm -hmm. the same technology you're using to determine the metabolic rate of your test subjects. Yeah, I, I think of the Fitbit or other sort of smartwatch uh, calories generated as a sort of, as a, as a um, what can we call it, a, a happy fiction. <laughs> uh, a random number generator. No, it, it's not. It's not quite that bad. But here's what they are doing: they're taking the movement of your body, obviously, and you've also probably programmed in your weight and something about your age, and it's taking all those numbers and it's it's guessing 
how many calories you burn every day. Um, it's, it'll get you in the ballpark usually. There's a lot of error on that, uh, but it's not what we use. So what we use is this, this isotope tracking technique. It's really cool. We can get to the details if you're interested, but basically um, you drink some isotopically enriched water, very safe. These are stable isotopes. These are things we use in, in medical and in nutrition studies all the time. Um, and over the course of the next week to 10 days, uh, we, we watch those isotopes flush out of your system. And the rate at which those isotopes flush out of your system tells us how much carbon dioxide your body's producing, because that's one of the ways that these isotopes leave is as, 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 as CO2. And so we have a really clear measure of the CO2 your body produces. And you, know, you, you don't breathe out carbon dioxide unless you're burning calories. It's, it's a tight physiological measure of how many calories you're burning. Uh, and so it's this really precise, accurate way that we can do this um, in a lab study. They're not sorry. You're not in the lab. So we can do this outside. You know, people in their normal daily lives. It doesn't have to be in the lab. So with this isotope drink that you're giving your study participants, not only did you test people in Western societies, but you also worked with tribes in Tanzania, hunter-gatherer tribes. It's one thing to convince, you know, an English-speaking American to drink something unknown, scientific. But how did you work with these tribes to convince them one of what you were doing? Two, why it was important, and three, how it was safe. No, that, that's right. So um, anytime you work with any population, right, that communication is so key. Uh, you can't just sort of parachute in, you know, if it's a community here in the States or if it's a community in Africa, it, the rules are the same. You have to, people have to, to, you have to tell them what's going on, explain to them what's happening, and, and earn their trust, right? It's, and, and so people have been working with this community, the Hadza community in Tanzania for decades. Um, my collaborators have been working with them for since the early 2000s. Uh, I joined in 2010. And so there was already a lot of trust and communication built up so we could explain what this project was all about. Um, they, you know, they, they get it in the sense that they know that their, their community is unique, right? They're surrounded by communities, uh, people who are, who are farming or have cattle. Um, they are hunting and gathering, uh, and so they, you know, they're getting their food from the wild landscape around they understand that that's different and interesting. And so they, they understand that our interest in, in their, in their lifestyle, uh, but that communication is key. Like you say. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Dr. Herman Ponser. He's professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University. And we're talking about metabolism. And it's really, it's good news. I think it's really good news, Herman, because what it's telling us is that, you know, while we've always believed your metabolism slows down, which is something we can't control. It's really our level of activity that may slow down as we age. And Katie and I have been talking this morning about how we try to like really move quickly throughout the day as we did maybe in our younger years. And when I'm around my 83-year-old mother, I see how slowly she moves and it makes me want to just keep, I don't know, maybe having the nervous jitters or something like that to keep my metabolism going. Does that uh, play out? Does that prove out? Yeah. So yeah, so being active is so important. You're absolutely right. And especially for aging, as we, as we age in our 50s, 60s and older, staying active, keeping your muscle mass up right? Really critically important. And for your, in your mother's case, for example, we see our older relatives start slowing down. Uh, and that's not, you know, we want to try to, to work against that. We want to get people exercised and try to fight that, right? The more you slow down, the more likely it is that, you know, you're going to have other problems as you age and maybe not live as many, as many quality years. A funny thing though, it turns out that being more physically active is not the best way to change your metabolism. Uh, it's, it's a great thing to do. It's a really important thing to do. But when we look at the energy expenditure of hunter gatherers, for example, who are really, really physically active, it turns out they have the same calories burned per day as people who are much more sedentary here in the U S and other Western contexts. So exercise, the way to think about exercise is it's not so much changing the calories you burn every day. That's a small effect. The big effect is it changes the way that you burn your calories. So it's instead of burning those calories on things like inflammation and other stuff that your body doesn't really need to be doing. You're burning those calories on exercise. And that's really, really good and important to, to say healthy. It, but that, what that means is that when we think about weight, right, gaining weight or trying to lose weight, that puts the emphasis on diet and the energy that we take in, the calories you take in as food, because exercise isn't going to change the, the energy game a whole lot in terms of total calories a day. We want to focus on food for that 
and that'll have a big effect on our weight. Oh, that is curious. Yeah. Okay, so then <laughs> as we wade through the various dietary trends, mm. are you suggesting then that that those really do carry weight and we ought to pay attention at least to the research and the science that comes out of dietary trends? Yeah, so dietary trends, you know, some are are more based on reality than others. Every diet that works for weight loss works for the same reason, which is it cuts the calories you're eating. And there's a lot of sort of hocus pocus out there about, uh, oh, this, this diet that you can go on, you know, you lose weight even though you don't cut calories. That's impossible. That, so, you know, the, the new the one these days is a sort of ketogenic, low-carb diet. That works for a lot of people pretty darn well, you know, if you're making sure you get your nutrition in, in other ways, but there's no magic to it. The, way, the reason that low-carb diets work is you feel full earlier and, and eat less, eat fewer calories. You know, vegan and vegetarian diets can work the same way. People, you know, if you sort of take half the menu away, right, and then you kind of, you get full on what you're allowing yourself to eat and you won't be tempted to, to sort of branch out and have the dessert or have the extra thing because I think, I think that's, that's generally how those work. Ultra-processed foods turn out to be really hard for our bodies to handle, uh, to sort of regulate how many calories you're bringing in. So the really highly processed foods, the ready-to-eat meals, uh, a lot of stuff you're going to see if you go out to eat, um, that can be also sort of hard for us to maintain a good amount of calories coming in. So that's also dangerous. But so, you know, the, I, I think that the diet research is important to pay attention to. The tribal diet wars, I think, are, are way overblown. But, you know, basically, if you find a diet that works for you, keeps you at a healthy weight, that's great. That's, that's what you want to go for. Well, one of the things you point out in your article is that if we can maintain a younger, faster metabolism into old age, there, are, there could be significant health benefits, such yeah. as heart, preventing heart disease, dementia, other age-related diseases. How do we go about maintaining that healthy young metabolism? That's right. Um, so I think exercise might have a role to play there. I think that's important to keep in mind that at these transition points in our lives, as we go you know, through our 50s and we start to age into our 60s and maybe our body starts slowing down a little bit, pushing back against that with exercise, um, maybe refocusing on exercise is really important there. Um, keeping your muscle mass up is important. Because uh, again, the more sort of the more of you there is, the more active tissue you've got, uh, cells working away, the more you're going to burn. And then, you know, I think this is also where we have to admit as scientists, we don't really know yet what else we can do, what other, our, what our other options are. I think the value of this kind of research is it points us toward okay, this is where we need to go. We need, we need to focus on metabolic rate. We need to focus on keeping our cells acti active and healthy. That's the target we can say with this research. It doesn't necessarily tell us all the ways that we might be able to get there. Another reason to keep lifting weights, right, Lynn? Yeah. Another thing you talk about in this article is how our diets and our ability to be hunter-gatherers really affected our evolutionary bump, mm. if you will. I mean, what was it that forced or caused us to become more of a calorie hoarder, if you will? Were we forced out of other areas? Do we know? Yeah, so I think this is one of the really fascinating pieces of, of this research for me. Um, I come at this as an anthropologist, right? I'm interested in the human, the human animal and, and how we got to be this way and how, why our bodies work the way they do and that evolutionary story. And, and you know, a lot of the work ends up uh, in the sort of diet and health papers today, and that's great, but I love it when you can connect this you know, important health work to the larger story of us. And the story is this, uh, as humans changed, as we evolved from being sort of ape-like and focused just on plant foods like chimpanzees and gorillas and other apes are, to hunting and gathering, to adding that hunting component. We kept on gathering, plant foods have always been important, but we added the, the hunting piece to it. The way that we got our calories right, became more social because we are not lions or tigers or, you know, wolves. We, we need to work together to hunt. And not only that, but hunting is risky. Usually you come home empty handed if you go hunting. And that's true if we will look at hunting and gathering groups today, like I've had a chance to work with. You usually come home empty handed, which means you can only hunt if somebody is willing to, who's going to gather, <laughs> is willing to share with you 
right? Because you have to get through the days that you're basically would otherwise starve. And so hunting and gathering is inherently social. It's the only way of making a living I can think of for any species where half the species does one thing and half the population does the other, right? And we share the, at the end of the day. And that sharing, that kind of dual approach, two-pronged approach, and we share what we get, um, it changed everything. It made humans more social. It made more calories available because we could depend on each other. So we could depend that we wouldn't be hungry at the end of the day. And our bodies adapted to that. So our bodies actually burn more calories than other apes do. We're built, we have a faster metabolism. We use those calories for things like a big brain, right? We use those calories to, um, to sort of provision our children. So in other species, babies have to learn how to, to make a living right away. And by the time they leave mom, they have to be able to make it, make it on their own. Our kids don't. I, my kids, <laughs> I've got an eight and a 10 year old at home. I can tell you, uh, they are pretty, you know, I love them dearly and they're wonderful, but my God, they, they wouldn't be able to fend for themselves. No way. Um, and, but that's the human way, right? We, we pay, we, we, we pay into our childhoods this way, right? We, we get all these resources, these foods, we pay into our childhoods and it's sort of this, this cycle of, of learning and have these long developmental periods, filling our big brains with everything we need to, need to know to be an adult. And then we pay that back to the next generation. And so it has changed everything. And that's what I love about this metabolism work is it tells you just how all these connections happen. And, and that's, that's been really fun. Mm, yeah, that's so interesting. It makes you wonder if it's the extra calories that grew, helped to grow our brain evolutionarily, mm. or was it the need to have more intelligence about how we were going to be cooperative with other groups to hunt and gather that grew our brain? Yeah, no, I think that's right. So I think the way that we would think about this from an evolutionary perspective is the calories make it possible, but it's the social pressures that make that 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 favor putting those calories into a big brain. Right? Most species, if you give them extra calories, they would spend that on reproduction. We would we would expect evolution to favor reproduction, right? Because that's what evolution really cares about is getting your genes into the next generation. But our lineage had these extra calories come in from the social foraging. And the selection pressure that was favored, the thing that was favored, was putting those extra calories into brains because we're such a brainy, social, complicated species, right? I mean, isn't that such a fun thing? It's a sort of indirect way to be successful uh, evolutionarily is to to invest in your your in your brain in your social world. <laughs> what a concept! We now, uh, so many of us, sit in front of a computer to do our eight hours of work. We're very mm. sedentary. Many of us, we have to then go out and get some exercise to make sure that our bodies are still going to work and move and all of that. And we think of those who farm now as being people who are really active. But what happened to our metabolism and our bodies once we started farming and moving away from hunter gatherer? Yeah, so the story of of our genus, the genus Homo, right? We're Homo sapiens, right? But this is a two million year old story. We're just the last chapter. Um, the story of the genus Homo has been finding ways to get more energy out of our environments and 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 you know be able to to get that energy and put it into our bodies. So fire, right, is this great invention for that, and that happens a million and a half years ago. Um, social foraging, all these other things. And then farming comes along and it's the latest great invention uh, about how to go and get calories rather than going out into the wild and looking all over for, for food, you plant the food right next to you or you keep those animals right next to you. And by doing that, um, we were able to kind of bend the, those species to, to what we wanted from them and make more calories available for less work. And so when we look at, at farmers and we compare farming communities we're talking about traditional farming communities where, you know, by farming by hand in sort of traditional settings. We compare that subsistence level farming to hunting and gathering. What we see is there is their bodies are burning the total, you know, similar total amounts of energy every day, but the farmers are able to put more of the energy into reproduction. They have bigger families, right? So women aren't working quite as hard because they can get more calories per hour that they put in. They're having bigger families. And so that's probably one of the reasons that farming was such a, a boon and sort of really spread. Once people hit on a good way to farm, and it happened independently a few places around the world. Once they figured it how to, how to do it, man, it really took off because those populations would have just grown really, really quickly. 
But when you talk about our brains using 20% of our calories, mm. calorie consumption, if we read more or think more, can that up our metabolic rate? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> uh, sadly, it turns out that your brain burns the same number of calories, whether you are have an active mind or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. So th they do like they, they've done fun challenges uh, in, in laboratory settings where they have people play chess. Right. So you have somebody rest and say, just, you're just resting, thinking about nothing, I guess. And then uh, the second half of the experiment, you're playing chess against the computer and they can change the computer settings so that it's always a little bit better than you. So you're working really, really hard. And it turns out that the difference is tiny, tiny, nothing really. That's a shame. Yeah, well, and I was also surprised to find that to read that men and women have similar uh, met metabolic rates. That's right. And, and that comes back to how the surprise there, I think, is that. Um, there's two ways of thinking about calorie burn, right? There's, in total terms, men burn more calories every day than women do. So uh, a typical American guy burns about 3,000 calories a day. The typical American woman burns about 2,400 calories a day. And there's variation around that, of course, but that's the, that's the typical. Well, so then, you know, then how, how can I say that men and women have the same metabolism? Well, that's because um, that difference in total calories a day is, is mostly due to size. Men tend to be bigger and men tend to have less fat at a given weight, right? Men, women tend to carry a bit more fat and fat doesn't burn many calories. Your other cells, your other tissues burn more. Um, so when we compare any, you know, across any population, we always are controlling for size and for fat percentage. And when you do that, what you find is that if you have a man and a woman, at the same body size and the same body fat percentage, right? Because there's overlap in all these things. Though that man and that woman of the same body size, same body fat percentage, we'd expect them to have the same calorie, burn the same calories per day. So metabolism is the same once you control for size and fat percentage. Mm. It just makes me think about my husband and I sitting at the, you know, going out to dinner and sitting there and thinking, okay, you weigh 50 more pounds than I do. So you've got to eat that percentage more of food or rather I have to eat that percentage less of food to achieve the same yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much right. That's pretty much right. When we think about babies, of course, proportionately, they're, they're so small, but they are burning, their metabolisms are so high because they're doing so many things. What's going on in, in this body of a yeah. baby? All the, I, I never even had thought about how organs burn calories, like Katie yeah. talked about, the brain. So our, our organs actually burn most of our calories. Well, they, I mean, I guess you could say your organs burn all of your calories. Even your muscles are an organ, right? Even at rest, your organs are burning a lot of calories. Uh, and babies, that's right, you're, you're born... Uh, with a metabolism that looks like you're sort of a, a, you kind of borrow your mom's metabolism when you're born, right? So you're, you're born with this relatively adult-like metabolism. Um, now, what I'm talking about here is all controlled for size, right? So babies are, have, don't burn many calories because they're tiny, tiny. But for their size, it's similar to an adult. And then what happens in the first year of life is your metabolism just rockets up and you end up, for your size, burning 50% more calories than we'd expect, right? If we would compare you to an adult that same size. And so that's remarkable. There is no, you know, exercise program, whatever you want, that will get your metabolism up 50%. That is just absolutely incredible. It just speaks to, like you said, that just how much is happening. We know babies' brains are rewiring, the process of learning, right? You're not just growing new brain. You know, your brain isn't just this lump of, of stuff. Your brain is this set of series of connections, right? It's a series of, of, of you know, wired synapses across all these different uh, cells in your brain. Building those connections takes, you know, takes energy to actually construct those and make that happen. Your immune system is growing up and learning, you know, how to respond to all the, you know, all the intruders it has to respond to. Everything's changing. And so it's not just adding new tissue. It's also sort of learning your, your organs growing up and learning how to be, uh, you know, good organs. <laughs> <laughs> well, in your book, Burn, one of the things you talk about um, is how calories are the currency in the economics of life. And so it really yeah. seems like we, 
one, we um, have a huge bank account now in terms of economics, but two, those calories really did help propel us to be the most advanced species. What can we do now to make the most of this excess of calories that we seem to be hoarding? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. How do we take all this, the success that we've had, right? Because that's, that's yeah. what these extra calories re reflect is this our huge success, as you say. What other species has this luxury, right, of just calorie excess? Um, well, first of all, I think it's helpful to start with all the good things it does for us, right? Um, the fact that you and I are working in a in careers other than food production, right, is because our species has gotten so good at producing food that only about 2% of people work in food production, right? The, the other 98% of us get to have whatever jobs we want, and the food production people get to have that job if they want it, right? But everybody gets to have their own interesting career and we get to have science and art and all these amazing engineering and everything, right? So our, the way that we've gotten our calories and been so good at it has made humans as successful as we are and made us, you know, things that are impossible for any other species, space travel. Right? I mean, think of anything you want to think about this sort of modern human uh invention exploration is possible because of is fun, fundamentally because of calories we aren't busy hunting and gathering every all day but right how do we do that in a responsible way responsible to the planet responsible to our bodies that's really hard i, I think i think we know enough to know what foods are obviously not going to be great for us all the junk foods that we surround ourselves with all the really highly processed stuff that we know is full of stuff that's bad for us if we want to you know if we wanted to as a society or if we want to in our own lives we can get those things out of our environments and that would be a great start. Where we get the, the sort of the, the will to do that, I think is a different question. Well, this is a fascinating topic. And at the beginning here of 2023, it gives us hope for our own metabolisms. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much, Dr. Herman Ponzer, for joining us. Herman is a professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University. His book is called Burn New Research, blows the lid off how we really burn calories, stay healthy, and lose weight. And he has an article in Scientific American on the same subject this month. So Herman, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. It's so fun to talk with you. Thank you. Our next guest is an associate professor of geology and geophysics at the University of Utah and the curator of paleontology at the Natural History Museum of Utah. He joins us today to discuss a collaboration with the Smithsonian and the Natural History Museum on a curious paleontological find in Nevada at the Berlin Ichthyosaur State Park. Never heard of it? Randy Ermis's work surrounded a mystery a mass death event in which the victims were large predatory marine reptiles in what is now Nevada. Randy Ermis joins us now to explain. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. Well, Randy, first of all, what is an ichthyosaur? That's a great question. Uh, these are marine reptiles, so reptiles that lived in the ocean during the time of dinosaurs but they're not dinosaurs. They're a completely different type of reptile. And um, they look a little bit like a dolphin, except uh, their tail fin is, is oriented up and down rather than side to side like a, a dolphin or whale. Um, and they did have a dorsal fin and were streamlined for swimming through the, the ocean. Um, and they were, came in all shapes and sizes uh, through the age of dinosaurs. Well, great. So why is this finding so important? Well, I'm, of course, biased because I'm involved in it. But um, <laughs> I think what what's really cool about it is what it tells us about behavior over 200 million years ago. It's not that often that we can come to direct conclusions um, about, you know, anim how animals are behaving millions and millions of years ago. And uh, in this case, we think we have evidence that these ichthyosaurs were coming together in groups to reproduce in a certain area in Nevada. So talking about the certain area in Nevada, Randy, I always think it's so interesting where, you know, you find these fossils or how they're found. So the yeah. Berlin 
ichthyosaur state park in nevada if you go out on highway 50 you know i think it's called america's loneliest highway and you pass eureka nevada and it's before you get to fallon it's this place called austin and then you hang a left and go south and somewhere out there in the literally the middle of nowhere there is this (laughs) massive paleontological uh find how was it found and what was the story around it Great description of where it is, and uh, and by the way, you know this ichthyosaur, uh, Shonisaurus, is Nevada's official state fossil, and I encourage everyone to go visit the the state park. It's really cool. The way this was found is a sort of two step process in the sense that in the 1920s, 1930s, um, some geologists and local residents noticed some bones in the area, but not much work was done and it wasn't really until a local resident got in touch with a paleontologist from the university of california berkeley named charles camp in the 1950s that serious major scientific studies started and he did a bunch of he and his team did a bunch of excavations there in the 50s through the early 60s and found many different skeletons including this one layer what we call a bone bed where there's um over half a dozen skeletons um, on one horizon that they eventually built a building over to protect and left in situ. Mm-hmm. How much preservation of these marine reptiles is there at the state park? In other words, you know, to attract especially kids, which I always think is so funny oh, that yeah. it's mostly kids that are so interested in in paleontology and dinosaurs and marine reptiles. You know, what is the preservation? What can you find when you go out? Yeah, that's the really cool thing. So it's like a mini dinosaur national monument. You know, a dinosaur national monument near Vernal, you've got this big wall with all these bones in it. And here at Berlin Ichthyosaur State Park, the rock layer is more horizontal, so you can walk around it. And you've got, you know, at least seven skeletons of these school bus sized marine reptiles exposed in the rock and you can walk around and look at all the bones and just see just imagine this giant animal swimming you know in the ocean in nevada 230 million years ago um and the skeletons range from you know partial skeletons where some of the bones are missing to a couple of the individuals are quite complete but in all cases most of the bones are still in life position so you can really get a sense of what they look like um and then um, you know, the, you're surrounded in these beautiful foothills of the Shoshone Mountains um, in sort of pine forest with a stream running through the canyon. And uh, there's a, a ghost town that's part of the uh, silver mining ghost town that's part of this state park. And they have a campground. So it's a great place to visit. So when you talk about this find and how many dinosaurs, or sorry, marine reptiles were found, um, and to discover that it wasn't a mass extinction, it was more a birthing area, but also they think it was an area where these marine reptiles would go in to die as well. Is that what they're starting to think it is? Um, so certainly a birthing area is what we conclude. Um, I We can't say that they were going there to die. Um, I think these animals are just preserved there because of natural, normal mortality, right? Animals are dying for various reasons over time. Um, It's not like this is, it's not like salmon running up the river and spawning and then dying sort of situation. It's just over tens of thousands to millions of years, you just get skeletons accumulating because of normal reasons for death over time. Um, But certainly we think there's good evidence that these animals are congregating to give birth uh, because we only find evidence of adult animals and newborn and embryonic animals and no juveniles sort of in the in-between ages. So where do you think that they would go off to after they would give birth? Uh, probably back to sort of where they're spending their normal time foraging for food and things like that. and. Um, so, you know, the, the best thing we can do is look for what we call modern analogs, so living animals that do something similar. 
Um, and, you know, a, a great example is gray whales that uh, congregate in Baja, California to give birth. But, you know, they spend most of their time um, off the off the north, the coast of the North Pacific Ocean, sort of, you know, from California all the way up to Alaska. Um, and so it's likely that these animals are spending their time, um, you know, maybe in sort of deeper open ocean um, most of the time, and then they came to this slightly shallower, more protected area to give birth. But that's just, you know, a hypothesis is right now as to where they're spending their time because we don't know for sure. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Randy Ermus. He is a paleontologist, uh, chief curator at the Natural History Museum of Utah, and he's also the author of the study that we're talking about. And I just think this is so interesting that here we are in the, the Great Basin, and I'm not sure what the elevation is out there, Randy, but, you know, it was once a shallow tropical ocean. That's right, yeah. So I am i don't have the exact elevation memorized, but, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, probably, I think we're somewhere between 5,000 to 6,000 feet elevation today. Um, and of course, very far from any ocean today. Um, so it, it really is pretty amazing to think about this sort of high desert mountainous area being a tropical ocean, but North America was much closer to the equator during the Triassic period, some 230 million years ago. And it also was very different in sort of what part of the land was above, uh, sort of above water uh, versus underwater. And uh, this part of North America was actually on the west coast of the continent at the time. Mm. It's just fascinating. Okay, 230 million years ago or so, <laughs> around about there. And, you know, we just don't think about, we think of Utah as being a desert, which it is, and we don't think about how it used to be. Um, it's, it's interesting to me, too, looking at your evolution, uh, your personal evolution, Randy. <laughs> you, you have a PhD in, is it integrative biology? Yes, yeah, that's a, it's um, basically what a lot of places call organismal biology. Okay, and then what is what is your evolution to paleontology? How did you get there? It's almost as yeah. interesting as talking about the ichthyosaur. <laughs> so in in the United States, um, you can't major in paleontology, um, and so paleontology though is a fusion of both geology and biology, and people come to it from both directions. And um, so I got my undergraduate degree uh, in geology at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. And then I did my PhD in a biology department uh, at UC Berkeley. Um, but, you know, my original coming to paleontology is sort of the classic story. I was interested in rocks, fossils, and dinosaurs as a little kid. Uh, you know, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, so I was lucky enough to visit really cool museums like the Field Museum, and then I just never grew out of it. And somehow I'm being employed to be a paleontologist. <laughs> well, Randy, back to the ichthyosaur. I'm just fascinated with the idea of the inference that we make on their behaviors. And like you said, we have these species nowadays that we can monitor, such as the whales. And yep. does this, finding this birthing area, does that shed more light onto the behavior patterns and possibly even familial structures of these ancient marine reptiles? Certainly, yeah. I think, you know, one of the really cool things is it shows that basically this this behavior that we observe in a, many different marine uh, animals today is something that's gone back at least 230 million years ago in time. And so I think that's really cool because it really connects these super ancient ecosystems to what we observe today. And it is a great example of how similar processes and behaviors uh, are common through time, even in completely unrelated animals. Um, it's difficult to uh, really s say too many details about familial structure, other than we can, we can infer that, you know, all these adults are coming together to reproduce, but exactly how long they're spending time together, you know, how long they're spending time with the babies is really hard to say. Well, and back to Lynn's earlier comment about 
what where Nevada used to be. I know the first ichthyosaur was discovered in England in Bath. And my first thought was, well, that's a long way to travel. But when you think about the supercontinent Pangaea that was in place back 230 million years ago, they weren't that far apart. But how many how many species of ichthyosaur were there? And how oh, far was their range? I don't know the exact number of species that are are known at the present, but it's got to be well over, you know, in the hundreds um, or certainly over a hundred. But of course, we're talking about a group that lived, you know, all the way from the very first ichthyosaurs are about just shy of 250 million years old, all the way to the youngest ichthyosaurs are, uh, you know, about 93, 92 million years old. Um, so we're talking about a group that was around for Oh, well, well over 100 million years. Um, but even then, you know, the, if you just take one time interval, there are many different species across the globe, and they did have a global distribution. We found them, you know, all the way from the Arctic down to uh, the tip of Antarctica and everywhere in between, at least in ocean deposits. Yeah. Randy, you know, Cool Science Radio is both a science and technology show. And I think that most people don't know that <laughs> paleontology is not just about taking your little instrument out into the desert of Nevada and picking through to see what you can see. What kind of technology do you use to digitally reconstruct fossils? Yeah, I think that's a great point and great question because Paleontology is really interesting because we're this sort of fusion of time-honored field techniques that haven't changed much since the 19th century, like you know, using plaster and burlap to collect fossils in the field. But also increasingly, we're applying all these new technologies. And in this case, because we're dealing with such an immense bone layer that is really big with these giant animals, it's really hard to study that in-person um, you know, a little patch at a time, right? Or to map it accurately because it's such a big area with such big skeletons. And so what we did was uh, our all of my colleagues who were involved in the study, uh, we worked with the 3D digitization team at the Smithsonian uh, to make a 3D model of that bone layer, a really accurate 3D model. And we did that using two different methods, laser scanning, which people might be familiar with, but also something called photogrammetry, where you basically take a bunch of different pictures from many different angles, and then a computer program uh, uses 3D trigonometry to match common points in those photos and create a, a 3D model. And not only is that 3D model really uh, cool because it allowed us to make some conclusions and gather data for the scientific study, but it's actually now online on the Smithsonian's website, and anyone can view it and manipulate it and rotate it around. Okay, that's great. And in terms of how you show your research, um, what you found on the, on the ichthyosaur at the Natural History Museum of Utah, what can people come there to see short of driving the eight hours, which of course they should, out yes. to the state park in Nevada? <laughs> Uh, well, currently we have a few of the fossils on display in the window of our paleontology collections. So on the third floor, you can look into the paleontology collections. And we we have uh, something called our featured fossil, where we show a different fossil every few months. And right now we've got some of our new Shonisaurus fossils on display. We're actually still in the process of studying the anatomy of some of the the skeletons we found and actually still preparing some of them in the lab. So there's hopefully, you know, more information to come in the future as well. But right now we have some of the jaws and teeth on display for people to check out. Yeah, a great time to come and see those uh, ichthyosaur fossils on display is towards the end of the month. We have our annual Dino Fest, uh, which is January 28th and 29th. We're bringing in speakers from all across the U.S. that are experts on paleontology and dinosaur paleontology. And we've got all sorts of programs going on in the museum, as well as opportunity to visit the paleontology collections and uh, the paleontology lab. Our theme this year is 
from bones to beasts all about the process of paleontology and uh, you can find out more by going to our website one thing lynn and i were both talking about before we started was the fact that these weren't dinosaurs i was quick to say oh we're going to talk about dinosaurs well actually yeah. we're talking about marine reptiles um, I think a lot of us assume that any large creature that lived 230 million years ago was a dinosaur. Can you tell us the difference between ancient marine reptiles and dinosaurs? Yeah, definitely. And it's worth pointing out that marine reptiles themselves are not one group. There's multiple branches of the reptile family tree that have invaded the ocean through time. The one we are probably most familiar with is, is marine turtles, uh, sea turtles, right? But uh, there's other groups like ichthyosaurs in the past that have done so. So dinosaurs are a very specific group of reptiles, just like primates are a very specific group of mammals. And reptiles have many different branches, and, and ichthyosaurs are a, a different sort of reptilian branch. And there's sort of specific features of the skeleton and anatomy that tell us that, um, that show that they're all reptiles, but they're different branches. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. But. <laughs> it, it does. And then also you're doing, are you still doing work down the Grand Staircase? Yes. With yeah. With regards we, to the late Cretaceous? Definitely. Yeah. We're still, we have a long-term project for almost the past 20 years now in, in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument that's definitely continuing. So. And then how many new dinosaurs or marine reptiles have you found in the last few years? Oh, you know, the, that's a great question. We continue to find uh, new species nearly everywhere our, our team works um, and new skeletons all the time. So I honestly don't even have an accurate count on hand. Uh, but I think, you know, it's this, this is a great example of where this is, this ichthyosaurus is an existing known species. And while it's really cool to find new species, I'm just as excited, if not more excited about these conclusions we can reach about how these animals lived and sort of the bigger picture, uh, more so than just, you know, adding another sort of species to the evolutionary tree. Oh, it's great. Um, I think this was about 10 years ago, Randy, and you probably remember when Science Friday came to, I think it was Salt Lake Community College, and mm -hmm. they did a live show and at the end, they had kids, or excuse me, they had people come up to the microphone and ask questions. And I say kids because <laughs> it was the, the kids that came up that asked the most interesting questions. And I think it continues to fascinate me, just the fascination of young people when it comes to paleontology and dinosaurs and our new classification, of course, marine reptiles. What do you, what do you make of that? Uh, yeah, I was actually part of the panel on stage at that, that point. Well, so, of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, I, it is so true that kids always ask uh, the, the best questions. And I think because they're not self-conscious, you know, I think of a lot of adults, they, they do have good questions, but they're somehow afraid to ask them and, you know, look, look dumb somehow or something like that, you know, but kids don't have that filter. And so they ask the, the really good questions. Yeah, I think, you know, increasingly, right, people want to know how science is contributing to society or, you know, solving grand problems that we're facing uh, globally, as they should. And um, certainly paleontology does play a part because we can find analogs in the past for things like our current biodiversity crisis and climate change, things like that. But I think one of the most important things that paleontology does is it serves as what I and many others have called sort of a gateway science, right? It's it's that that sort of science that kids are intuitively interested in and gets them really into it and maybe causes them to hopefully causes them to pursue a STEM career. Um, and and so I think that's one of the most important things we can do is sort of provide that spark and and encourage the next generation of scientists, engineers, artists, et cetera. Yeah, and along with that question is, um, how many women are in the field? It seems like on this show, all of the paleontologists that we have interviewed are men. There, there are uh, 
a lot of female paleontologists and the number is growing. And in fact, if you look at our scientific paper on this study, a good number of my co-authors are female as well. And, you know, right now, I would say um, at the sort of student to postdoc level, uh, the balance in paleontology is about 50-50, if not slightly more women. Um, the real place where we need to do work as a field is, is to ensure that that balance is reflected at the higher levels, the more senior levels, um, including at all levels of, you know, uh, faculty and curators at museums, things like that. Um, and we are making progress, but we need to do more work sort of as a, as a field, as a discipline, but also more broadly within geosciences as well. Well, as a kid who grew up in Vernal and wanted to be a paleontologist when I grew up, um, I find it fascinating to think that in reading this article, the smoking gun, as it was, it was said, was found in a museum collection. So that just goes to show that it, paleontology, the discoveries are made not just out in the field, but a lot of people going back in and reevaluating what do they already have. And like you said, the new technologies that they're coming up, I mean, how many, how often do you go back into the existing collections and solve questions or discover new questions? All the time. You know, people think about field work and excavation a lot when they think of paleontology, but that, and that is critical for gathering new data, but a lot of new data is gathered just from visiting existing museum collections. That's why those collections exist, because they're not just storage places for dusty bones that no one looks at. Scientists, including myself, but many others from across the globe, are constantly going into museum collections and learning new things from existing specimens. You know, there are many paleontologists who don't do any field work. All the data they need is gathered from museum collections. And so that really shows the value of these collections and why we care for these specimens in perpetuity. You know, we're still, we are still learning new things from ichthyosaur skeletons that were collected in the first half of the 19th century by Mary Anning uh, in England. So that's exactly why we care for these specimens and, and keep them in museum collections. Randy Ermus is the chief curator at the Natural History Museum of Utah, uh, talking to us about the ichthyosaur and a huge fossil bed, a wonderful representation of all the work that you've done and the collaboration also along with the Smithsonian. It's out in the Berlin Ichthyosaur State Park in Nevada, south of Highway 50. You should all go and visit. And Randy, thank you so much for joining us again on Cool Science Radio. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. And thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City.